Good morning, I'm Pastor Ryan, and I'd like to thank you for tuning into our service today at Grace Presbyterian here in Segola. This morning, we begin a brand new series walking through the book of Titus. We will examine the Apostle Paul's opening introduction as his thesis to the letter, and we will see that the call towards godliness is found in our hope of eternal life, and it's pursued through the knowledge of the truth, God's truth of the gospel. Thanks for listening. Some friends of my family that have came and visited us here at Grace a couple of times, um, they're the Hawkins family, and they actually, they live quite a ways away. So if you were to head down through Niagara and take uh, Route 141 South, almost by the time you get to Wasaki is where they live. Now, folks, that's a little bit of a trip to get to Segola. Uh, you, you think you got a bit of a rush in the morning to get ready. These folks are getting ready by 6 a.m. to leave and make it here to church in time. Well, we wanted to go out to see them, so my mom and I uh, got together, and she pulled out some, um, some instructions on how to reach their house. Now, I'm going to show this to you guys. Do you guys know what this is? <laughs> So this here is a, this here is one of these old-fashioned uh, antique um, artifacts from a time gone by. Uh, my generation doesn't even know what to do with these. We all what'd you do before smartphone? Well, I don't even remember, right? But this is a map, and uh, on the instructions that <clears throat> the map said, it had some very specific details. Turn right at this sign and at this road. Uh, turn left, and then when you see the blue something turn another left and um, we we did our best to make it down the road and to, to follow the map and the instructions but uh, pretty soon my mom thought this looks this looks familiar and so she thought she could make it and we put the map aside and guess what happened got lost, got lost way down in central Wisconsin towards Wasaki and uh, we had to then backtrack and f- find something that we could identify in the map and then go back and, and follow it closely and, and watch carefully because you know what happens? You can take one wrong turn and what will happen to your destination? You'll be completely wrong. You'll be completely wrong. I want to make the point because it doesn't take a, a, a hundred wrong turns. It doesn't take all wrong turns. How many does it take? It, it takes just one little wrong turn. One, one turn when you take your eye off of that which would instruct you on the way you should go. If you take your eyes off of it, you run the risk of making one wrong turn. And from that one wrong turn, you may end up somewhere you never intended to go. There's another illustration of this I thought of. Um, many times we would uh, <clears throat> fly over to the Caribbean. We take one of these little airplanes. You know, the small 15-seaters that uh, you're thankful they have the barf bags in the back, right? But if you, if you like flying, it's a lot of fun. Otherwise, it's a kind of scary. And uh, if you were to get on one of these airplanes and take off but change your trajectory by just a one degree. So instead of, instead of going one degree to the right, you instead would go one degree different to the left. And you set your heading like that. You won't be very far off track once you leave the airport. But what happens when you get miles and miles and miles and miles from your destination? You see, j- just, just a little bit of a change, just a little bit off, will eventually turn out as you continue it to progress on that same path, pretty soon you'll be so far from your destination, you don't even recognize where it is. Uh, any fishermen out here today? Give me an amen. amen. Uh, that warm weather was kind of nice, right? Almost thought it was coming again. Well, here, here's a fishing illustration for you. 
Um, have you ever been uh, bass fishing with a heavy bait line and, and you give that a cast and there's just that sweet spot? You know the hole where the fish are. You know the big ones down there and you just got to get it right under the dock or right under the log. Well, what happens when you let go of the bail? Now, some of you guys are can cast one hand, no problem. You don't need to two-hand the thing out there. But what happens if you let go of the bail just a little early or just a little late? What happens? Yeah, you end up in the tree is what happens, right? You, you, you end up in the, in the neighbor's uh, yard is what happens. Or you end up hitting your buddy in the back. Because it doesn't take missing uh, from back here. It doesn't take a, a large degree, just that split-second difference, just a tiny sliver to change from where you were aiming that pretty soon you'll be where you don't want to be at all. I bring these illustrations up because I believe they prove true for the church as well. We're, we're going to take the next couple of weeks and we're just going to read through a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to one of his students. His name is Titus. In Paul's day, there was a lot of teaching that wasn't really wrong. It was just a little wrong. They, they had most of the subjects right. They believed in God. Even some of them believed in Jesus. But they just changed one or two little tiny things. Not off by a mile. Just off by a little bit. But Paul will write to Titus that these small errors will lead to enormous consequences when it comes to how we practice our faith and when it comes to how we understand who God truly is. We're going to be in the book of Titus and I'm titling this message, uh, The Knowledge of Truth. We're going to begin right at, uh, in his introduction. Uh, the book of Titus is a letter. It's like a letter. So how do you begin your letter? Dear Grandma, we love you so much and hope that you're doing well and can't wait to see you again. Right? There's, a, there's an introduction in your letter. You always begin with some introductory uh, remarks, an opening line, if you will, really before you get into the content of the letter. The reason I'm writing you today is because I would like more chocolate chip cookies when we come. Right, that's the real reason for the letter. But before you get to the meat, you have your introduction. And that's where we're going to sit today. We're going to sit in the, in the introduction. Um, if you have your Bibles, Titus chapter 1. Helen, what page is it? 1857. And what we're going to do together as we read through it is we're, <clears throat> we're going to first read through it and then look at a little background because I want you all to be familiar with Titus and the situation and the relationship between, between Paul and Titus and what's going on there. And then we're going to continue just to highlight four words. So there's going to be four main words we'll look at this morning and then we'll conclude with a few points of conclusion. So Titus chapter 1, the first four verses. Paul, a servant of God... And an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. A faith and a knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. Which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And has appoint, and at his appointed season, he has brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Savior. 
kind of puts my email introductions to shame, right? How about you? I mean, that's, there's, there is so much here. We don't have time to get into all of it, I, though I wish we did. And maybe if we can touch on a few in Bible study in the middle of the week. A few things that I would like to highlight for you. But before we look into these words, I want you to know who Titus is. Titus is not Jewish. He's not one who grew up following after the traditions that Paul did. He is a Gentile. And because of this, he doesn't fit into their system very well. Anybody here ever uh, new to church? Anyone here ever come in and, and they're just singing... Songs that you didn't really know, been singing them pretty good and loud, right? And you kind of felt, oh, what did I get myself into? Who are these crazy people, right? You're, you're just not familiar with all that we do. Um, I, I remember the first time um, I visited this church, and Pastor Dave said, we're now going to sing the Gloria Patri. And I said, uh-oh. <laughs> I don't know if I know the Gloria Patri. Well, guess what? After a little bit of time... Now I know it. Well, this is how it was with Titus. He wasn't as familiar with the ways in which Paul was trained in the Jewish faith of understanding their relationship with God. He was a Gentile. He was an outsider. But Paul was going to bring him in. I would like to draw you to the story where Titus shows up. And it comes in the book of Galatians. So if you will turn back with me, a few pages back, a few books back in your Bible, to a letter that Paul wrote to a group of churches in a region called Galatia. One of the problems in Galatia was there was a teaching that was spreading. It came very early in the practice and the faith of Christianity, which said, not only does God love you, but hey, you you got to do some things too. If you want God to really love you, you got to add a couple of things to your faith. You got to make sure that you're doing this and make sure you and don't ever do this and you have to do all these and then God will love you. Galatians chapter 2. Helen, where are we at? 18:11. Galatians chapter 2. And this is where Titus falls into the story. Chapter 2, verse 1. Fourteen years later, this is Paul speaking, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now you need to know at this time, the church is really not spread very far over uh, the course of the Middle East. Uh, The apostles, and many of them, are still stationed right in their home base. I mean, the place where this all began was Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is where we celebrate Pentecost. That's where the Spirit came down and landed on those believers to empower them for the work of the ministry. He's going to go back to Jerusalem now. This time with Barnabas. And I took who? And he takes Titus with him. Titus was one that Paul met on his journeys. As he was out sharing the good news... Not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to the people that never heard. They didn't know how to sing the Gloria Patri. Paul was going to them, and he was preaching to them. And he found Titus, this one eager to serve God and zealous to live his faith for God. And he said, Titus, we're going to go back to Jerusalem because there's something that we need to address, and you're coming with me. He could identify in Titus that this young man had potential, that this was somebody who was one day going to be a leader within the church and within the faith. And so Paul identified, I need to bring you along with me so that we can do this together. So he takes Titus, verse 2. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Now think about that for a minute. What's Paul fear? He's been gone. He's been out on this missionary journey. But suddenly he's come back because he's afraid it was all for what? It was all for nothing. 
Uh, you, mean I, you mean I wasted my time? You mean that I got it wrong? You mean that the gospel that I've been preaching, the gospel of grace, where forgiveness is something that's free, isn't really the truth? That there's more? See, this is what Paul is concerned with. Uh, verse 3, look at this. Yet not even Titus, who was with me. Remember, this Gentile, this young man, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Uh, this issue of circumcision is one that we really don't translate well today. Uh, we might think of baptism as a good corollary between the practice of this as a sign of God's promise. Well, the sign of the promise for God's people back then was it was circumcision. So if you wanted to belong to God, circumcision was the way to express that as a sign. But see, Titus knew the gospel. Titus knew that there was nothing that you have to do, nothing that I have to do to please God. Instead, he comes to me. He redeems me, not in my good works, but in my sinfulness, he comes to me. Titus knew this. So he knew there was nothing that I needed to do to belong to God. I belong to God. Why add anything to it? Verse 4, this matter arose because some, what's your Bible say? False brothers. That's a, that is a painful phrase right there, church. False brothers. Who thinks Paul was concerned about being politically correct? Anybody? He called it like he, he saw it. This matter arose because some false brothers. You know what that means? That means they're really not your brothers. Anyone ever have friends like that? Hey, bro. What's up, bro? Good to see you. Can I have, a, can I have, a, can I have 10 bucks? You got 10 bucks, bro. Right, I know you. We've all met people that seem to be friends with us because of what they can get from us. Right? Are they really your bro? Are they really going to be there? No, I've seen it before. When things get hard, what happens to these these good buddies, these brothers? They're they're gone. It's very possible to act one way when truly you aren't that way in your heart. That's what was happening. They were acting like brothers, but they're false brothers. And they had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have. In Christ Jesus. And to make us slaves. Slaves again to works. We did not give in to them for a moment. So that the truth of the gospel. Say that word. Truth of the gospel. Ready? Truth of the gospel might remain with you. That's what we're studying. That's what we're studying. The knowledge of the truth. How do you guys feel about Titus's background? You see what he was going through? You know, in our world today, there are, there are preachers who will say and are recorded saying, you know, it's not for me to judge. There's, there's a lot of good people on earth of, of different faiths. And I can't judge their heart. There, there may be more than one way to God. If that strikes you as offensive, that's good. Because that's wrong. That is a wrong way to think. And, and those teachers, those are false teachers. They, they look and sound and act right, but do they have the truth of the gospel? Say no. Do they have the truth of the gospel? No. no they don't because they've added something to it. Uh, there, there's other ways that other faiths believe they can get to God. If you grew up as a Hindu, there's four paths, four ways that you can get to God through uh, right action. That's service. So if you do good service, you get to go to God. 
Um, study, uh, knowledge is another one. That's like study. Devotion is the third way. And one final way they call the royal road is meditation. Now for the Hindus, they believe in something called moksha, which is this oneness with God. And so there's four ways that you can get oneness with God. Or maybe you're a Muslim. Muslims have these five pillars, five things that you must do in order for God and for Allah to really approve of you. Uh, you need to, first of all, declare that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. It's called the Shahada. You need to also pray. You need to give. You need to be uh, in charity, you know, giving alms is what they call it. And then fasting and finally a pilgrimage. Five, five things you need to do to please Allah if you're a Muslim. And if you're a Buddhist, you don't even believe in heaven, but you believe in something called nirvana, which is just, I've never quite understood how the gospel can compare to this foolishness, but it's, it's emptiness, it's nothingness. Their greatest desire of all is that when they die, they are like a candle that's gone, completely gone. And there's eight ways that you can do that. There's a local pr preacher who I was at his Bible study this past week. And he shared something i got to share with you. That if there is more than one way to get to God, folks. If there's more than one way, then why in the world would God ever take his one and only son, have him flogged and crucified for the sins of mankind? If you could get there another way, why go through all that? If there was a doorway just across the side, and I'm God thinking, you know, here's another way. I'll send my son. But, but you don't have to go this way. You could just take a meditation or service or giving of alms or pilgrimage. Because there's other ways. Why in the world would God do that? And the truth is, there is only one way, church. There is only one way to God. And this is one reason why I find Christianity so compelling. Because as you look to the religions on earth, Christianity is the only one where God reaches down and lifts up mankind. All the rest are mankind reaching up to God and working and striving to please God. That's that's the little error. That's the little change in what these false brothers were teaching. They were saying, hey, you want to come to God? Well, then you need to get circumcised. You, you want to become a Christian? Well, then you need to keep the law in order to become a Christian. That's what they were teaching. If you would like more study on this, I, I'd like you to write down um, Acts chapter 15. And when you go home, you can read that because that's the story. It's actually a historical story of when these guys got together in Jerusalem and hashed it out. You have some of them saying, hey, here's what we need to do. And then you have Paul right there with Barnabas and Titus. And he says, let me tell you about how these Gentiles come to God. And finally, Peter stands up and he, gives, he lays down, this is the way I see it. James stands up. He says, this is the way I see it. It's a fantastic reading. It shows what happened as the early church fathers, the people on whom shoulders you and I stand, they understood, no, listen, it's by grace alone. It's by grace alone. This year marks the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Who's the main guy in the Reformation? What's his name? Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Thank goodness for Martin Luther because the Catholic Church, the one that we would have all belonged to, was headed down a wrong path of having to do things to get to heaven. Oh, there's another way. There's another way. 
He said, that's not what the scriptures teach. You and I, we're all products of the work that he put forth along with some other reformers of that time. They had what was called the five solas. And one of them, and perhaps the most beautiful of all, is grace alone. That's what they would say. Grace alone. There's nothing you add to that. All right, come back with me now to the book of Titus. I like to just draw out a few of these words here that we would understand what he's saying is in his introduction. He calls himself a servant of God. This is the only time Paul uses this phrase to reference himself. And then an apostle of Jesus Christ for two reasons. For the faith of the elect, that's us, church. The ones whom God has chosen, that's us. For our faith, he wants to build our faith. He wants to build up your faith. That's why he's writing this letter to Titus. And secondly, for the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. That word knowledge is one that a lot of us uh, have a hard time with. Whether you admit it or not, I will admit it for us all. We have a hard time with that because knowledge takes a little bit of effort. It takes a little bit of work. Um, we had a saying when I was in school, if you don't use it, you, you lose it. That's right. Um, it means, knowledge here means a full apprehension. I'm sorry, appreciation. A full appreciation of the truth. That you appropriate it unto your life, unto your heart. I'm, I'm taking it as my own. One commentator said it this way. Faith is a heart response. Question, is your heart involved in turning to Christ? Yes or no? Yeah, your heart is. It's a, faith is a heart response to the truth of God, but it also must possess the mind. God never wants you to unplug your mind. He always wants your heart and your mind to operate in unity. That's why Paul writes at the beginning of this letter, for the faith of the elect and the knowledge of the truth. God never intended his people to remain intellectually ignorant of the truth of the gospel. If you don't use it, you what? You lose it. Um, there was a TV show, a game show that kind of um, built on this idea. I don't know if you remember it. It was led by Jeff Foxworthy called, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Remember that? Well, I was humbled by that show more than once, right? Yeah. I wonder if we might just do a little experiment here in church this morning. So here was one of the questions on that show. Let's just see how we do. Uh, the question Jeff Foxworthy asked, it was a first grade level question. Can you identify the number of the letter H in the following phrase? Right? Here's the phrase, and you have to count the number of H's. Here we go. The eighth letter of the alphabet. How many H's are there in the phrase the eighth letter of the alphabet. Now don't shout it out. I'll give you ten more seconds to, to intellectually try to... What did I learn in first grade, second grade, eighth letter? Uh, okay, everybody got a number? How many people raise your hand uh, say there? And no cheating by majority here. How many people say three? A couple threes. How many people say four? And how many people say five? Look at the little kids here with the five. Let's just take a look at the phrase. Let's count it out. And, oh, man. Five is the right answer. Five. How's that humble pie taste? That's pretty good. If you don't use it, you lose it. And uh, the reality is that this is true not only in first, uh, first grade through fifth grade, uh, but church, this is true when it comes to the Word of God as well. There's a reason why Paul had to write to those who were going to become leaders in the church. 
that they would begin to identify their minds with the truth. Our hearts are there for the most part. God's pretty good at capturing our hearts. And wherever we're lost on that, he'll work circumstances to recapture your heart. But the mind takes some work. The mind takes some effort. And it's not easy. But this is the call to the church. Knowledge. God never intended his people to remain intellectually ignorant of the truth. The next word I want to look at is that word, in fact, is truth. It's not uh, knowledge of church, right? It's not knowledge of Paul. It's not knowledge of, uh, of politics. It's knowledge of the truth. When Paul puts this in here, he wants to compare it um, specifically to that which is false. Now, I use two words just now that do not equate in the world that you and I live in. Have you heard the term postmodern? Has anyone heard that term before, postmodern? What that means is that truth now is not something that anybody can claim objectively. There's no objective truth. Postmodernists say there is only what's called subjective truth. Subjective truth. They make claims like this. Uh, there is no grand story. It's called a meta narrative. There's no grand story that unites all reality. It's not there. They say there's no ultimate foundation upon which reality can be based. They'll say truth doesn't correspond to reality. Instead, truth is a matter of perspective. Boy, that gets me. That really gets me. Um, I, I don't know if many of you are familiar with this, but a few years back on uh, Facebook, there was a dress uh, that was two-toned. Uh, some of you know what I'm talking about? Uh, th there was a dress, and some people thought that it was uh, the color gold and white, and other people looked at the dress, and they thought that it was the color black and blue. And they couldn't agree over this. The Internet exploded with people because what they wanted to do was claim subjective truth, that the dress is whatever color it is because that's the way I see it. Would you like to see, would you like to see a picture of this? I, let, let's just take a look. And what, what do you think that is? White and gold or black and blue? Black and blue. This is totally not making my point. <laughs> uh, I'm going to blame the screen right here for the division that we have on this one. I'm turning a little red up here too. Um, here, here's, the, here's the way it works. That when uh, on a screen the resolution of images gets shifted dependent on how you look at the screen. It's something called exposure. And uh, anyone who's familiar with Photoshop or working much in photography will understand what exposure does. Is it heightens other tones and lessens some others. So depending on the screen you're looking at, you're going to get a different reality. How many people in here think this is white and gold? How many people think it's black and blue? In reality, it's white and gold. The, the thread that was used was gold thread, not black. The thread that was used was white thread, not blue. But the reason that you may not be seeing that color has nothing to do with objective truth. It has everything to do with subjective truth. In Paul's world, this was a problem. Because there were some people that thought the truth meant that you had to do certain things to please God. And that was true. Even though it was false. Even though it was their perspective. Christians, this is something that we must 
ground ourselves on. That when God speaks, He speaks singularly to truth. And if you disagree with that, if your perspective is maybe different than that, do you know what? It really doesn't matter because God's truth is singular. Uh, Today is my wife's birthday, and so like a loving husband, I was at Walmart last night. (laughs) Any amens there, fellas? Don't leave me hanging. And uh, I was uh, picking her up an ice cream cake. That's her favorite cake for her birthday. It's ice cream cake. And uh, over on the bakery side at Walmart, they have them, and they're, they're in their freezer, and they've got two different sizes, but the boxes are almost the same size. So the cake size is much different. If you were to get the box out, you'll notice one is about this big and the other is about that big. But the boxes are about the same size. Well, there underneath the boxes, one price said $18.99, you know, almost 20 bucks, And the other said $9.95, 10 bucks. Like that's, a, that's a pretty big difference. So which one do you think the loving husband grabbed? <laughs> so I, I grabbed it and I, I, I took it over to the cashier. And when she was ringing it up, I noticed that it came up at $18.95 and not the $9.95 one. And then I asked her, I said, uh, I think I saw that was on sale. You know, I saw they had the little yellow sticker, right? And it had it right there. And she said, well, you know, I don't, and, and uh, the poor lady, of course, it's scanned on the barcode. What do you think? That you're going to change the price? But guess what? She decided, as a wonderful lady, I wish I could tip her. She was very nice. But she walked all the way across to check it herself and... Um, Felt bad for the folks behind me, but hey, what are you going to do? And she, um, she, she came back with two cakes now. The one that I brought her, and then the little one that was actually $10. Now, what if I'm there with her? As she now is explaining to me, the boxes look the same, but the cakes are actually different. What if I said to her, well, you know what? My perception was that this should be $10. That's the truth that I thought. Right? That's the reality that I thought. What's she going to say? Sir, you need to get out of this line. That's what she's saying. <laughs> you see, truth is singular, church. And we need to become the kind of people not so overwhelmed with our cultural empowerment. Have it your way. I mean, you're the boss. You're the call. However you want it. We've got to get over that and recognize what this book says is authoritative. What this says is truth, not what I want it to say. That's not going to be easy for us. If we're honest, we will find that in every aspect of our life, God's truth will come and it will change us from being citizens of earth to becoming citizens of heaven. We need that, but you will never find that if you live postmodern. You'll never find that if you continually want to think, well, truth is what I want to make it to be. It's my perspective. Paul comes in his introduction. He says, I am here, Titus. I'm writing to you for the knowledge of the truth. All right, two more words. The knowledge of the truth that leads to what? It leads to godliness. It leads to godliness. It leads... It's a word that we don't use too often. Godliness. I want to break it down real simple. Godliness is the result of you spending time with God. The more you're around God, the more you'll become like His Son. 
The more you invest yourself in his teachings, the more those teachings will become integrated into your life. This, however, is true on the converse as well. I wrote it down this way. You take on the characteristics of the company you keep. You do. You take on the characteristics of the people you surround yourself with. You will look like the people you spend time with. It will happen. Unconsciously, it will happen. Without even trying, it will happen. I remember I worked in high school at the county um, over in Florence, uh, Road County Commission, and I was, I was the lowest guy on the totem pole there. Um, a lot of really good guys. I love those guys. Uh, not God-fearing men, though. N- not afraid of God at all. And their language showed it. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? So, some of the coworkers that you may have, some of the people you might surround yourself with, you may find suddenly that things that ought to strike you as being uh, not right, in fact, offensive to God, the way God's name even gets invoked as a curse word. If you're around it long enough, you know what will happen? That pinprick will stop hurting. And pretty soon, you won't notice it. And pretty soon, it won't matter at all. You will become like the people you surround yourself with. Paul says, I'm coming to bring you a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So that if you begin to invest yourself in his word and in his teachings, surrounding yourself by his people, pretty soon you will begin to look more like his son. And that's the truth of this. When I was in Texas, I came back home to Wisconsin and without even knowing it, um, said, hey, y'all want to go get something to eat? (laughs) They said, where have you been? And I said, I'm sorry. (laughs) Or maybe some of you that may have moved up here from uh, either lower Michigan or somewhere else in the States uh, pretty soon. It's not too long before you start saying, "Uh, yeah, there, don't you know? Let's go out in the woods fishing, eh? Right? Because you begin to take upon the characteristics of the people that you are with. His truth, church, his word, his truth will lead to godliness. You want to become more like God? You want to look more like his son? You want to change the characteristics, the loves of your life so that they don't look like earths anymore? You need to invest yourself in his holy word, in the knowledge of the truth. All right, one final word here. It's probably the most of all, and it comes right after this in verse 2. It says a faith and a knowledge, right? Those two things that Paul is bringing. Everything from verse 1 is resting on what? The hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life. I'm going to hit this as hard as I can because I, I know I can preach too long sometimes, and I'm thankful that you guys stick with me. But folks, you've got to hear me. This is the centerpiece of your faith. The centerpiece of Christianity is our hope of eternal life. Not eternity in heaven. It's not. It's not eternity disembodied in heaven. It's eternal life where we live again. And the promise that's given to you is that if Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, so will you be one day. And any of us who have lost loved ones, we understand how very dear this truth is to us. But it's one that we get lost on in our faith because we toss around the word hope without thinking about it. In, in the Bible, hope is used 166 times. It shows up in, your, in the New Testament. A couple of those times, it will be used in a regular way. Paul will say things like, I hope to see you. Or when he writes, I hope to visit you. And we use hope that way as well. 
But when we do, we speak about our wants. I hope they got blueberry pie at the bake sale. <laughs> but what you mean to say is, you want what? Blueberry, blueberry pie. Well, Jesus, I, I hope the snow melts and the uh, lakes thaw so I can go fishing. Like, you don't hope this. You what? You want this. We need to restructure in our minds what we mean when we say hope. Because the genuine hope for the Christian is the hope of eternal life. That is what we hope for. We want a lot of good things. We want a lot of other things that God will sometimes give us. And he will provide for our needs. But what we truly hope for is not on earth. Um, Tom Wright, he's a theologian and a pastor. He wrote a book called Surprised by Hope. I want to read to you just a paragraph of this because he hits the nail on the head. Listen to this. He said, salvation then is not going to heaven, but being raised to life in God's new heaven and earth. But as soon as we put it like this, we realize that the New Testament is full of hints and indications and downright assertions that this salvation isn't just something we have to wait for in the long distance. We can enjoy it here and now, always partially, however. Partially, of course, since we still have to die. I sometimes wonder about Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? Mary and Martha, they come to Jesus. Brother's sick. Jesus, if you come, you'll be healed. And then he dies, and Jesus comes and does what? Lazarus, come out. And then Lazarus had to do what later? He still had to die again. What a bummer for Lazarus, right? Yeah, death is a reality, church. Death is a reality. But when we talk about being saved, what we don't mean is saved to live in heaven forever. What we don't even mean is saved so that life here gets better. What we mean is we are saved for eternal life. The reason why I want to emphasize this is because if you continue reading in verse 2, look what Paul says after this. Uh, the faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, and it makes me chuckle because he has to say, who does not lie. I know God. He doesn't lie. Which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. This hope is what's given to you before the beginning of time. And now at his appointed season, he has brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me. I want to wrap this up with just three points of conclusion, three ways that we can understand what he's saying, and then just how to carry this into next week. Number one is this, knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. Knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. Make sure that we understand that's not necessarily preaching, not necessarily Bible studies. It's when we do what with it? Engage our... It's very possible for us to go to church and just, what did the pastor say? I don't know. I, I was tuned out, right? I was tuned out. Or, or go to Bible. This happens to me sometimes. I'll open my Bible and I'll start reading and then I'll remember, oh, there was a bill that had to be paid and my eyes are still reading, right? And then I remember, oh yeah, and I told that person I was going to call them pretty soon. I'm half a page down and I have no idea what I just read. <laughs> right? My brain disengaged. Will that lead to godliness? Yes or no? It won't. It's a knowledge this is appropriation onto our lives. It takes work. It takes effort. That's why we got to engage. That's why we need one another. That's why the gifts are spread throughout the church so that we can encourage one another. The Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, we watch out for each other. We build each other up, but it's done so through a knowledge of the truth. That will lead to godliness. 
Number two is this. Godliness is found in the hope of eternal life. This knowledge of the truth, the faith that's for all Christians, it was, it was offered to you before time. God planned this before creation that he would want to live forever with us. Together with God. Can you imagine that? Remember what it must have been like in the Garden of Eden? To live with God in harmony. No sin, no suffering, no pain. You just live how God would want you to live. Church, someday that will happen again. Someday in the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth. We will walk, we will talk, we will live with God. Godliness is found in our hope of eternal life. That's where it's found. And we need to begin to look for that because life here is going to be tough. You're going to run into trouble and you might get stuck here unless you've placed central in your life hope for that which is to come, not hope here. Like Lazarus, still going to die. Still going to die. The, the penalty that's guaranteed for all mankind, for the wages of sin is what, church? Yeah, you know what you've earned from your sin? I've earned my paycheck? It's death. So I could continue to hope that I get a new truck. I could continue to hope that I get to go fish. I could you know, hope. But you know what those hopes are? Those are wants. That's what those are. I'm, I can hope for those things. I can even pray for those things. But they are not my central hope. When I place my hope in, in God's return, in my resurrection, living with him on earth, new heaven, new earth, godliness now clothes me because I want to live now like I will then. Godliness is found in the hope of eternal life. And then lastly, this, the hope of eternal life is brought to light through his word. You might recognize that these conclusions kind of build upon one another, right? Knowledge of the truth, it leads to godliness. Well, godliness is found in the hope of eternal life. And where do we get the hope of eternal life from, church? Say it good and loud. Where do we get it? Yeah, from his word. You may, you may have gotten a little off track, right? Maybe you're here this morning and uh, you know that the, uh, the roadmap of uh, instruction, the manual that you were supposed to be reading really hasn't been a part of your life and you're a little off track right now. Maybe you found yourself somewhere where you don't want to be. Is this the life that you wanted to have? Is this what it means to be a Christian? Maybe there's something that you're struggling with. Maybe there's something that's just weighing you down by doubt that you don't believe God will ever fix. I have good news for you this morning, church. God calls to you on that road. No matter how far down you've gone, no matter how many turns you've made that haven't been in the right direction, He's calling your name. He's calling you today to say, come home, follow me. And his love is extended to you without cost to you. Because guess what? It's been paid. The cost of our return, it's been paid. There's no bill. There's no account. There's no invoice. It's been paid by God through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Church, I want you to know this morning, you can return and it's never too late to return. There aren't many ways to get to God. There's one way to get to God. We need to be the kind of people that pursue that sort of godliness, pursue following after our Savior. 
by acquainting ourselves with a knowledge of the truth and placing our hope not in the here and the now, but placing our hope in eternal life. You say amen with me? Amen. 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 Let's pray together.